You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. This is part uh, 7 of a set of sermons through uh, the book of Romans 8, or the chapter, uh, book of Romans chapter 8. So if you'd go ahead and turn there, it would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. And while you're turning there, um, I want to just take a moment to brag on the staff that the Lord has given Stonegate Church to serve you and our church family. Um, The Lord has been so, so good to us in so many different ways. Like when I think about our staff right now, there is such a precious unity that the Lord has given us and I'm so deeply grateful for, but you have good men and women who are laying down their life and serving you, our church family. And I just wanna point out two people on our staff, just really briefly to you, uh, that are, have just hit their five years of serving Stonegate Church. So they, they just hit their five-year mark with our church family. And that is Travis Wyckoff and Jessica Attaway. Let me just talk for a second about Travis. Travis has been just such a gift from God to our church family. If you know Travis, I think you would really quickly affirm that. He has just been such a gift for us. Um, he does home groups. He helps with a lot of our staff now. Um, he does so many of the back behind the scenes work at our church, um, in our church family. Our leadership pipeline stuff is all under Travis. He's just doing such a great job of serving us. He's a great gift to you. And just for me personally, he has been such a great gift for me. I just so deeply appreciate it. I have hard times, you know, just putting words on how much I love Travis Wyckoff. And so, yeah, for sure. And the other one is Jessica Attaway. They both were hired at the same time five years ago. This last week, both hit their five years serving Stonegate. Jessica does a ton of the behind the scenes work for our church family. She's an admin assistant for us and just does a great job. She's loyal. She is diligent with her work. She works so hard and is so faithful to serve you. And and, uh, for most of us in the room, it'll be ways of serving you that you'll never see personally. Um, but it will have happened for you. And so to Jessica and Travis, man, I just want you to know as our church family, we love you and appreciate you and are so, so thankful. So if you get a chance when you see either one of them today, I think both of their pictures were up on the screen. Um, If you get a chance when you see them, make sure you just commend them um, and affirm them and thank them for how they have served um, this church family. So if you'll do that, that would be absolutely wonderful. Travis and Jessica. Okay, we are to Romans uh, chapter eight. Um, called by some the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. Um, I love how one pastor put it. He said, if Romans is the crown of the Bible, and I kind of think it is, I think it's the Bible condensed down into 16 chapters. So if the Bible is the, or if, if Romans is the crown of the Bible, he says that Romans eight is the brightest jewel. And I think that's likely true. I think it probably is the best chapter of the best book of the Bible. When I think of Romans chapter eight, I oftentimes think of it as a bank vault. And uh, Romans chapter eight is that moment where God, the owner of the bank, undoes the bank vault and says, will you please come on in and walk in? And I want you to see and experience and put your hands on and feel all of these gold-plated sort of promises that, that I give to you. I want you to come in and experience these things. This is Romans chapter eight. And I hope that it's proved to be that for you. I hope it's been beneficial for you that the Lord is working um, on you and in you as we have worked through Romans chapter eight. Now, when I think of one of the reasons why we wanted to preach through Romans chapter eight, it is because it shows us and reveals and talks about and exposes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. So, so if you have an ESV sort of version of the Bible, um, over the top of, of you know, Romans chapter eight, you'll see that it says life in the spirit. 
And this is what Romans 8 is showing us. It is showing us what life in the spirit looks like. You know, it's interesting in the book of Romans, um, Romans is 16 chapters. In the first seven chapters of Romans, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned five times. In the last eight chapters of Romans, uh, it's mentioned, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned eight times. That's 13 total in the 16 chapters other than Romans chapter eight. But then you get to Romans chapter eight and the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 20 times. I mean, it is showing us what life in the spirit, what life with the Holy Spirit indwelling us can and should look like for a Christian. So if you think about Romans chapter eight, I mean, this is one of the ways I think you could just kind of condense down the summary kind of version of it. It's God saying, what what is my provision for weak, failing and falling Christians? What is my provision to you? My provision is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is my provision for you to help you, to be a grace to you, to help you along toward maturity. You know, if you think about Romans 8 from the beginning of the chapter, here's what you'll find. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit has liberated us from the oppressive power of the law. You get to verse 4, the Holy Spirit's empowering us to fulfill the law's righteous requirement. You get to verses 5 and 6, our minds are not to be set on the flesh, but they're to be set on the Spirit. You get to verse nine, the Holy Spirit now lives in us. You get to verse 10, the Holy Spirit gives life to our spirit. It imparts life to us. You get to verse 11, the Holy Spirit will one day give life to our mortal bodies in the resurrection. Um, Then you get to verses 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit in us now enables us to kill sin rather than coddle sin in our lives. You can see that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. This is the ministry of the Spirit in your life and in my life. And then you get to verses 14 through 17, and here's what we're about to find out today. This is what another ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verses 14 through 17, we're gonna see that the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity. The Holy Spirit gives us a new identity. So look at verses 14 through 17. I'm gonna read this with you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we now cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Now this passage is gonna take us two weeks to get through. So this is gonna be kind of part one of this passage. Next week is part two. But I wanna point out three things about this passage, three things that we see here. And the first one is our new identity. The Holy Spirit in this passage is giving us a new identity. Now, when you just read, you know, we just read through uh, these four verses, there is a common phrase and a common vocabulary that helps us see what the theme of this passage is. Let me just point it out overtly to you. If you look at verses, or verse 14, verse four, and by the way, it's gonna be threaded into all four of these verses, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, all has a common vocabulary that's lifting up the theme of this passage. Verse 14 says that we are sons of God. Verse 15, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16 calls us children of God. Verse 17 reiterates, and if children, 
Do you see the common theme? The theme of this passage is that the Spirit has given us a new identity. And this new identity is that we are sons and daughters of God, that God is now our dad, that God has taken us rebels and he's adopted us into his family and he's made us his kids. We have gone from lawbreakers under the wrath of God to we are now in the family of God where we receive the warm affection of God. So this this is the new identity that we now have in Jesus. Now this new identity, we are sons, God is father. This new identity is foundational to our life with God. It is foundational to our Christian living, to what life looks like for us. So, so just to kind of give some substance to that, let me um, let you in on something Sinclair Ferguson says. He's a pastor and theologian. He says this about the doctrine of adoption. This should be on the screen for you. He says, the notion that we are children of God. So the fact that we are children, God is our dad. The reality that we are children, we're his kids, God's our dad. This notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, the notion that we are children of God lies at the heart of all Christian theology. In other words, if you could cut all Christian theology to its core, what you would find is God's adopting love. So the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, lies at the heart of all Christian theology and is the mainspring of all Christian living. In other words, the the spring from which everything else in the life of a follower of Jesus flows is God's adopting love. It's, It's this idea that we are God's kids. He is our dad. It is from that place, that secure place, that everything else in our life, everything else that we wanna see God do in us, everything else flows out of this reality. We are God's kids. He is our dad. Everything flows from that. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. In his book, Knowing God, there is a chapter on adoption that I think is the best single chapter on adoption that's been written in church history. And in that chapter, he says this, if you wanna know how well a person understands Christianity, if you wanna know how well they get what Christianity is and what Christianity is about, here is what you need to do. You need to see how much they make of the thought of God as father. That will tell you how much they get Christianity. That will tell you how much they understand what Christianity is and what Christianity is about, how much they make of God as Father. Now just think about that for a second. How much you have internalized, not just theoretically you kind of know this, but how much you have internalized. God's my dad, I'm his kid. I'm his son, I'm his daughter. How much you have internalized that, how, how much you know that deep down in your bones To the extent that you know that is the extent to which you understand Christianity. In a very real way, this is the most profound and deepest thing that can be said about a human being. God is his or her father. There is kids. It's the deepest thing that could be said about us. It's the mainspring of all Christian living. Now I want you to look at verse 14 for a minute. I wanna point out something that it clarifies for us. Verse 14 clarifies that our new identity, our sonship, our new identity, that we are God's kids, he's our dad. This new identity is shown in us putting sin to death. This is what verse 14 is showing us. Our new identity is shown, it's giving evidence of it 
when we put sin to death in our lives. Look at verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So that begs the question, what does it mean to be led by the spirit of God? Now, when you're, when you're reading the Bible and you come to moments like this where you're asking interpretive questions, what does this passage mean? What does this phrase mean? Here is the number one thing you need to always think when you're trying to interpret the Bible, context. Context is the most important thing into you interpreting the Bible correctly. So when people get to this moment, oftentimes they leave context behind. When they get to this passage, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? They oftentimes leave context behind and instantly jump to, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? It probably means like, how did I get to Midlothian? I got to Midlothian because the Spirit of God led me to Midlothian. How did I marry Laura? Like, why did that happen? Well, the Spirit of God led me, I guess, to like marry Laura. So we naturally think of like these, these sort of big moments in our life where the Spirit gives us guidance and direction. Now, I don't wanna downplay that, that the Spirit does do that in our life and we are all dependent upon that. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here in verse 14. And the reason I don't think that's what Paul has in mind is because of how verse 14 starts. Do you see the word for in verse 14? That word for is connecting verse 13 and verses 14 together in a really, really tight way. So think about what verse 13 is saying. Verse 13 is saying, this is Paul saying, that there is a new person, his name is the Holy Spirit, who lives in you. And this new person, the Spirit, is now empowering you to say no to sin, to put sin to death in your life. The Holy Spirit in you is empowering that in your life. Then verse 14 explains why. Why is the Spirit of God in you? Why is it empowering you? Why is he empowering you to put sin to death in your life? Here's the reason why. Verse 14, because you are children of God. That's why. So I think if you just tie verses 13 and 14 together, here's the way I would say it. In verse 13, the phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body, that's verse 13, is synonymous to the phrase in verse 14, being led by the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God means we are putting sin to death. These two things are saying something very, very similar. That what the Spirit of God leads us to do is to hate the things that the Spirit of God hates, namely sin. And the Spirit of God leads us to love the things that He loves, namely Jesus. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. And it's in doing that that it shows evidence that we're actually children of God with the Spirit of God in us. So, you know, this is kind of a recap of just last week. And I just want to create a moment here for you. I just want you to create a moment where you just ask right now the Spirit of God to show you, is there anything in your life that needs to be put to death? Any sin in your life that needs to be put to death, not, no longer coddled, those darling sins in your life, what, what needs to be put to death in your personality? What right now needs to be put to death in your beliefs? What needs to be put to death in your behavior right now? Just ask the Spirit of God to reveal that to you, to show you that, to lead you toward that, to empower that. This is one of the things that gives evidence that we're actually children of God is that we are putting sin to death in our life. This is what the spirit of God in us does. It leads us to hate the things he hates, sin, to love the things he loves, Jesus. So this is our new identity. We are sons of God. Point number two, point number two. If our new identity is sons and daughters of God, Point number two is, what are the new privileges that flow from this new identity? 
What, what are the new privileges, the new rights, the new, the new promises that God gives to his sons and daughters? And I think this is an important thing to think through. If Sinclair Ferguson is right, and the notion that we are children, that God is our father, is the mainspring, like it's, it's the fountain from which all of our Christian life flows. If that's true, we should think about what does it mean to live in this identity as sons and, and daughters? What does it mean to live in the identity of, of, of God is our daddy? He loves us like that. What does it mean to live in that? Um, the Puritans used to have a kind of a way, and I love the way they express this. They had a fond way of saying that, uh, just kind of identifying what is the, one of the main problems in the life of followers of Jesus? What is one of the main problems? They would say it like this, that far too many Christians live below their privileges. That, that far too many Christians have been promised this, but live as if God has only promised that. That far too many Christians live well below their privileges. I think one of the ways that you could think about what it means to grow up in Jesus is that we become more and more and more and more and more alive to the multifaceted privileges, promises, and rights that we have as sons and daughters of God. This is how we grow up in Jesus. So I wanna spend just a few minutes thinking through with you, what are some of our privileges as sons and daughters of God? And we could spend literally a whole set of sermons on this. There's dozens and dozens of them. I just wanna walk through four of them really briefly with you. What are some of our privileges as sons and daughters of God? Here's the first one. The privilege of assurance. The privilege of assurance. And this is really the, the big theme of Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. It is Paul trying to convince us, God doesn't just kind of tolerate his sons and daughters. He loves his sons and daughters. He loves them like with a big hearted love. That's how God loves us and thinks about us. You know, I've been in pastoral ministry now for over 15 years. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the number one problem that when I'm just sitting across the table that I see in other people and see in my own heart, the number one problem we all have is this suspicion of the love of God. Does God really love me? Does he just kind of tolerate me? Like, am I living under the constant frown of God or does he actually like me? Which is it? I think this is the number one problem in our lives is just doubting that God really, really does love us. And listen, doubting that, being suspicious of that has devastating effects in our lives. Devastating effects. I love how one author said it. He said, few things hinder action within the Christian life more than being unsure of God's love for us personally. I'm gonna say that one more time. Few things hinder action within the Christian life more than being unsure of God's love for us. When you are unsure of God's love for you, it stifles your life with God. You'll never be a risk taker for Jesus. You'll never do the next courageous thing when you doubt his love for you. It has a way of blocking those things, of stifling those things. But on the other hand, when you are sure of God's love, man, it puts steel in your spine. It gives you courage. It puts wind in your cells. It puts hope in your heart. That's what being sure of God's love for you does. Now in the New Testament, here's what you're gonna find over and over and over again. To counteract that suspicion that we have of God's love for us, the New Testament consistently points us back to our adoption. Consistently points us back 
to our identity as sons and daughters of God. This is what the New Testament consistently does. And this is what Paul is doing in verse 15. In verse 15, look at what Paul does here. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive that. You do not any longer have to cringe in fear of God as if he's gonna smack you the next time you fail. You do not have to cringe before God wondering, are you under his frown or his smile? Which which is it? You don't have to cringe before God wondering, does he really like you? He's saying, you don't have to do that any longer. Why? Verse 15, the second half, because you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That's why, because you're a child of God. And when you know that it makes all the difference in the world. Um, I'm not overly proud of this moment of my life, but it was a moment. When I was in junior high, um, I spent the night with um, a buddy and there were several buddies all over at the house. There were like five of us, which is always dangerous. Five junior high kids, one home, bad things are going to happen. Somehow we find ourselves kind of walking down Main Street and we are on like a perfect little ambush place for passing cars. It's like got this, this hill right beside us. So cars are coming this way. So we're perfectly protected, kind of down in this little ditch. So they come by, they have no idea that we're right there. And just happens to be right beside us, a massive mound of wet toilet paper. Just happens to be there. I don't know how it got there. Um, so as cars are passing by, we decide this toilet paper is about to be on some cars. So we get the, the softball size toilet paper in our hand. It's smashed down tight. A car comes by and we just light these cars up. It literally sounds like a bomb's going off every time this wet toilet paper is hitting these cars. So car number one comes by and just five of us. I mean, and we're like from me to the front row to the car. I mean, we're like right up on this thing. And bam, you know, we just pepper this, this car with toilet paper. The next one comes by, bam, pepper this one, next one. About the fourth one, this poor lady drives by and her window's down. Her window's down. So here she comes and we've got the toilet paper and it's just, I mean, we're lighting this car up. One of them goes inside of her window, you know, the whole thing. When that first, you know, explosion happened at the side of her car, I mean, it, it like, it's from me to the front row, hard as you can, toilet paper hits, bomb goes off, it sounds like. I hear this poor lady scream out, oh my God, they're shooting at us. <laughs> I have never felt more bad in my life. I mean, just scared this poor lady to death. The next thing we know though, out of the corner of our eye, we see a police car and it's like 90 to nothing going right at us. Jumps the, I mean, it's Duke's a hat. It jumps the curb, comes to a screeching halt right in front of us. This officer is out of his car before we even know what's happened. We haven't breathed yet and he's there. And he's just looking at us right in the eye. And you know that moment when you look at a police officer and you know you've, you've been caught doing something wrong, you know, it's that moment. There is like this massive fear in that moment of, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? I mean, we're just sitting there cringing as we are realizing we are caught. He throws us in the back of his car, takes us to the police station, calls the parents, I mean, the whole nine yards, right? Now, you know what's interesting about that moment though? That same police officer that brought such fear to us walked home that night, went in his door and had little kids run up to him, grab his leg, hug him, probably wrestled on the floor that night. In in his presence, these kiddos were totally secure. 
They loved it. They were comfortable. They were at ease. Now, what is the difference between these two scenarios? One cringing in fear, the other one totally at ease with a deep level of security. Do you know what the difference is? These are his kids. And when we are living in our identity as sons of God, daughters of God, we no longer have this cringing fear of God anymore. We're no longer questioning, man, does God like me or not? Like, how does God feel about me? No, in that moment, we come alive to God. We are secure in the presence of God. See, here's the thing when it comes to the love of God. You are never going to feel in a really deep way the love of God. You're never going to feel that really deeply until you know what kind of love that is. And here is the kind of love that God has for us. It's fatherly love. He loves us like his kids. We're his sons and daughters. He's our daddy. And he loves us like that. You know, there's this interesting passage in John 17 where we just kind of get to overhear Jesus talking to, to God the Father. So God the Son's talking to God the Father. And Jesus says in John 17, as you have loved me, you love them. You love them even as you have loved me. Now think about that. If somebody were to ask you, how does God the Father love God the Son, Jesus? How would you describe that? I, I think it would be with a lot of great words. He loves God the Son with God, like this limitless love. It is boundless. It is energetic. It is passionate. It is personal. He loves God the Son. And Jesus is saying, that is how God the Father loves you. Just like God the Father's you know, heart leaps for joy at the thought of his son, Jesus. Jesus is saying, that is how God the Father's heart leaps for joy when he hears your name. That's how God loves you. Just like he loves Jesus. This is why John Owen, the old Puritan pastor, this is why he said it this way. The greatest sorrow, the greatest burden you can lay on the heart of God the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to God the Father is to doubt or not believe his love for you. He loves you like a dad. You are secure in his love. It's an adopting sort of love. That's the way God loves you. And I'm just praying that there would be a moment right now where the Spirit would just do something in us to convince us of that. Not like just that we know it in an abstract theoretical way, but deep down in our bones, we would feel the Spirit pressing this down into a place that we would know this like deep in us. We'd be convinced of this. It's the privilege of assurance that God loves you with an adopting love like a father to his sons and daughters. Here's the second privilege. It's the privilege of access, the privilege of access. In Matthew chapter five through verse seven, Jesus preaches a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter six, he spends a whole, basically a whole chapter of that sermon talking about prayer. And at one point in that sermon, he um, walks through the Lord's prayer. And he says, here's how you can pray. You can pray like this. He's just modeling what it looks like to pray. And when he's modeling prayer, here are the first two words out of his mouth. Do you remember this? The first two words of the Lord's prayer. Our Father. The first two words that, that, that he gave. Now, if you would have been a Jewish man or woman in that audience when you, and listening to Jesus in that moment, it would have been hard to describe the shock that would have come over you. Jesus, 
you're telling me we can talk to God like that, with that sort of intimacy and that sort of a personal way? You're crazy. We, we don't talk to God like that. We don't refer to God like that. We refer to God as Yahweh. This is the God that in the Old Testament, when he parted the Red Sea, he, he rescued us from Egypt. He ran, you know, rained manna down from heaven. This is that God. He's big. He's transcendent. You've got to have more respect for God than that. We can't talk to God in such personal ways. And Jesus is saying now, Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You can talk to God with that sort of personal intimacy. There is a new day and it's no longer stressing the, the, the transcendence of God and God's up there-ness, but it is now stressing God's nearness to us. That the ease of which we can access God. Listen to J.I. Packer talk about this, this emphasis that the New Testament gives on the nearness of God. He says, holy, holy, holy could be used as a motto text to sum up the theme of the whole Old Testament. The basic idea which the word holy expresses is that of separation or separateness. The whole spirit of Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. This emphasis in the Old Testament overshadowed everything else. But, he says, in the New Testament, we find that things have changed. God and religion are not less than they were, but something new has been added. A new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. This is the new factor. They deal with God as father. Father is the name by which they call him. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the whole, this holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of his saving work. Do you see that? Jesus is saying there is a new factor and it's called me. And it has come in and it has opened up access to God that you would never dream of. And it's so deep and so intimate and so personal that you can now look up at God and here's how you can pray to him. You can start it like this, our father. Now in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus has just gone through the Lord's prayer in the gospel of Luke, he, he follows that up with telling a parable. And the, the parable, the basic structure of the parable is it's about this man who is in need of bread. And he, he's in need and in the middle of the night, he starts banging on his neighbor's door and he keeps banging and he keeps banging and he keeps banging. And because of his persistence, uh, Jesus says, because of his persistence, he, you know, he gets up in the middle of the night, he gives his neighbor what his neighbor wanted. Now, commentators are really quick to point, you know, to pick up on the fact that that word translated persistence in the Greek, that that word could also be translated, maybe better translated, shamelessness. That there is a shamelessness that this neighbor had in busting down his neighbor's door at 3 a.m. for a piece of bread. There is something crazy about that. There's something even not right about that. But the point of the parable is to say that yes, that would be shameful for a neighbor to do, but not for a son, not for a daughter to do. It is not shameful for a son. You can actually approach God like that now. There's actually an invitation to approach God like that now. I mean, I mean, think about in your life. If a neighbor came up and started banging on your door at 3 a.m. and said, man, I just, I just wanted a sandwich tonight. I didn't have any bread. Can, I, can you spare two, two slices of bread? I'm fighting that neighbor at 3 a.m., right? That is not right for a neighbor to do that. 
But if your kid woke you up at 3 a.m. and said, Daddy, I need some water, what dad in here isn't gonna get up, right? And, and this, is, this, is what, this is what God is saying here. He's saying, you can now approach me like that. There, there is now an invitation to at any point with anything in your life to bang down my door. I'm giving you that sort of personal access now. So just ask yourself the question, is this the way that you approach God? Do you approach God with that sort of, sort of just shamefulness of anything at any time? And I'm gonna bang down his door and go for it. I'm gonna take all of these things to them. You know, we have um, three young kids in our home. And you know what I've never seen any of my kids do? On a Saturday night when I'm finished up some sermon prep and I'm in my office kind of doing my thing, I've never seen one of my kids knock on the door, just peek in and say, Daddy, I know you're probably working on something real important. You probably got something that's gonna be, you know, really good. I, I know you're working on all that stuff. But just, if you get time, would you just, could, could I come in at some point and I've got a couple things I wanna run by. I've never heard it go down that way, right? I mean, here's how it goes down in my house. They bust through the door before I even know what's happened and they just blurt out whatever it is on their mind. And God is saying, would you please walk in that sort of right, in that sort of privilege with me? Would you please feel the, the, the privilege? Would you please, deep down in your bones, know that you have the right that you can bust down the door with anything that you want? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to act like you're better than they are. You can come just like you are, bang down my door and bring to me whatever you want. Do you approach God like that in prayer? With that sort of shamefulness? with that sort of boldness and confidence. I mean, the writer of Hebrews says it like this. I think it would be a summation of this privilege. He says it like this in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is saying, would you please just bust down my door? Would you, you can have confidence in that. At any point, you can bust down my door and I would love to respond to you. I would love to answer you. I would love to hear from you. It's the privilege of access. Here's the third privilege. It's the privilege of provision. The privilege of provision. So not only does our adoption secure for us, you know, the assurance of God's love, it also grants for us, you know, access to God anytime, any place. But it also does this third thing. It also secures for us the, the, just the providential provision of God. And, and that means that God takes upon himself the obligation to care for us and to provide for us in this life. That God, if you're a son or daughter of God, if you're in Christ, that God is looking at you and he has pledged to you this promise. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will give you everything you need. Now let's just clarify. That doesn't mean you're gonna have everything you want. It doesn't mean that God's like Santa Claus, you just kind of ask and something gets, it doesn't work that way. But it does mean that God will give you everything you need, that he will be involved in every detail of your daily life, providing and caring for you. And maybe just the best place to see this is in Matthew chapter six. I wanna read for you kind of an extended passage here and just allow the Lord to talk to you just through his word as I read this. This is um, Jesus speaking when he says this. Therefore, I tell you, this is Matthew 6, verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. I just wonder how many of us are anxious this morning about this thing or that thing, how this is gonna work out. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Please, he's saying, just take a look at the birds of the air. Every time you see a bird, I pray that this would be brought to your mind. Take a look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these, just the grass of the field. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God as Father, for they seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all. For those who are anxious in the room, I I just wanna just allow the Lord to press this into you. Just consider the grass. Consider the birds. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God would clothe grass like that and care for them, if God would, would care and provide for birds like that, how much more are you sons and daughters of his? How much more would he be interested in caring for you? It's interesting. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, the exact opposite logic is used. In, that, in Romans 8, 32, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Listen to how he argues it. He says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave Jesus up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, if God would literally send his son to be slaughtered so that you could have life, If God would do that great thing for you, wouldn't it be a really small thing for God to provide for you and care for you? I mean, wouldn't we just kind of take it for granted that if God would do that for us, that surely he would take care of our needs on a daily basis. For all of those who are struggling with anxiety this morning, fear this morning, what's tomorrow hold? How's this gonna work out and that gonna work out? What's gonna happen with that? For all of us struggling with that this morning, hear me. All of our fear, all of our worry, all of our anxiety, the remedy for all of those things is found in the fatherhood of God. This right of of God's providential provision for our life. Lastly, the last privilege I wanna talk with you about is the privilege of providential protection. Providential protection. Providence is God's constant care for, his absolute rule over all of his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. That's what providence is. His absolute rule over, his care of all of his creation for his glory, good of his people. It's, you know, when you think about God's providential protection, it's taking a verse like Romans 8, 28, that God has promised he will work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means that in an ultimate sense, there is never going to be a thing ever enter into your life because God is your father. There will never be a thing enter your life because God is your father that will not ultimately be turned into good for you. Nothing will ever enter into your life that will not be turned for good. Every bad moment you ever have in your life, every moment of suffering, every tear that you have ever cried in this life, God is saying, I will bottle up every one of those tears and every one of those bottled up tears will be turned into eternal joy later. 
Every moment of suffering, everything that is allowed into your life will find its culmination in your good. That's God's providential protection for your life. Now, we all run into moments in our life where it's hard to believe that, isn't it? Where it's really hard. And if you're a parent, you have experienced this in a really up close and personal way. Um, With our kids, it's interesting how often we have to allow pain in their life, not because we're trying to crush them, but because we're trying to be good parents to them that we have to allow pain in. Here's one of the latest examples. Um, Our kids are kind of in that phase of having vaccines and all that. And Hannah, our oldest, hates shots. If I put, literally, if she's sitting in the front row and I pulled a needle out, she's gonna start crying in the front row. She hates shots, she can't stand them. And the last time we took her to to the doctor, it was vaccination time. So he pulls out a needle, she instantly loses it. We're having to kind of do the hold down thing to get the vaccines into her leg. Like that whole thing is going on, right? And, and there's a moment where you just realize as a dad, there is no way I'm gonna walk through the logic of what's happening and calm her down. Logic is not gonna be helpful right now. So all you can do in that moment is look at your kid and just say, listen, I'm your dad, you can trust me. You can trust me. If this was bad for you, I would not let this happen. If this was not for your good, this moment would, no way your dad would be holding you down for it. No way. Now, welcome to so much of our life with God, right? We are the kid getting held down by God as the vaccine comes in. And unlike Joseph, remember Joseph in the Bible? He got to see his story come to full fruition. All of these terrible things happen, but then he has raised the second command in Egypt and he has this sort of look back over his life of realizing, oh, I can see how the Lord has brought good out of all that. But the truth is for most of us in the room, we're gonna die not knowing how good came out of it. And hear me on this. When you don't know how anything good can come out of it, your adoption Your new identity as sons and daughters of God allows us to approach that moment in a distinct way. As sons and daughters of God, we can look up at God and we can say to God, you don't have to explain how it's all gonna work out. But because you're my dad, I trust you. I don't know how it's all gonna work. I have no idea how you could ever bring good from this. But because you're my dad and I love you and I trust you, I'm gonna trust that you're gonna do that. See, when when we look at God and say, you've gotta explain it all right now or else, we are refusing sonship. We are refusing to live in our right of providential protection from God. But when we look up at God and say, you don't have to explain it all. It's okay if you don't, because I know this is not an expression of your ill will. I know this is not because you're trying to punish me. I know you love me right now. When we live in that, we are living in our identity. We are saying to God in that moment, I am your son, you're my dad. And I know this is gonna be okay in the end. I know you're gonna use this for my good in the end. And I just know that so many of us right now in this room are in seasons of suffering. And I am praying that the Holy Spirit would give us the ability to approach God in our suffering, most of which we cannot see how it's gonna work out for our good, that the the Spirit of God would impart to us the grace we need to live in this right of God's providential protection. That we could encounter this moment in the distinct way of saying, God, I don't know how, but I know you're good. I know you're gonna do good to me. Lastly, and we'll finish here. Last thing about our new identity. Our new identity, this identity of sonship is is received, it's not achieved. 
Our identity is received, it's not achieved. This is what Paul is showing us in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received. This is how adoption, this is how this new identity, this is how redemption from God works. It is never achieved. It is never, you work hard enough, you perform hard enough, you do enough good things, and then God lets you into the family. That is not how God works. Identity, this identity of sons and daughters of God, it is not achieved by us, it is received by us. It is when we come with the empty hands of faith, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is how this identity is received. That's how it's done. This is how John puts it in in John 1, uh, verse 12. He says it this way. But to all who did receive him, it's received, not achieved. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who believed in the name of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, the penalty of our sin falling on him, All of his perfect record of righteousness being credited to our account for all who received him, who believed in his name, his person and his work. He, God the Father, gave the right to become children of God. That is how we step into this new identity. Um, Brian Chappell is a, uh, or Chapel. he is a author and seminary professor. He tells this story about two kids in his hometown. His hometown had a river that ran right through it. And this river was really important to commerce in their hometown. So they would consistently have to dredge the river. Um, So that that means scooping up all that sand and silt on the bottom so that boats and and ships could could freely kind of pass, you know, to and fro for the commerce of, of their city. And every time they would dredge that river, they would scoop up that sand and they would just heap these massive mounds on the side of the river, on, on the riverbank there. And, and those massive mounds on the side of the riverbank became the place that kids always wanted to play. It was like the funnest place in the city to go, but it was also the most dangerous place for kids to play. Reason being, if you can just imagine a big mound of sand getting dumped on the riverbank that's wet, what in instantly happens is the sun bakes that outer layer. So the sun bakes it, moisture evaporates. You've got this hard kind of crusty outer layer of this sand mound. And then over time, the the moisture inside of that mound uh, begins to be sucked out of that sand and the sand condenses, leaving all of these pockets right under that hard crusty layer on the top. And so you can just picture what happens. These two brothers one day, an older and a younger brother, are out playing on the riverbank on these mounds. And the two brothers are having a great time and all of a sudden they hit one of these pits. Their feet go through that hard crusty layer and they are enveloped into that sand. They didn't come home that night. Their parents begin this frantic search. They get neighbors involved. The whole town's looking for these kids. And finally they make it, the search party kind of makes it to this riverbank where these mounts are and they find the younger brother. And when they find him, he is unconscious and all that's sticking out of the sand is like from right here and above, like barely his shoulders are out of the sand and his head is barely out of the sand. And they finally kind of, you know, rouse him and he comes to, and the first question they ask him is, where is your older brother? Where is your older brother? And he just responds back in this hoarse, raspy voice, I'm standing on his shoulders. And if you want a picture of the good news of Jesus, there it is. How do we receive God's adopting love? How do we receive God's 
redeeming love, there is only one way and that is on the shoulders of Jesus. This is what Paul is saying in verse three when he says, you, you know, you've got no condemnation. You've been liberated, right? You were sons and daughters of God. How did that happen? How could that possibly be? Answer, by God the Father sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, Jesus, condemned sin in the flesh. But by saying, verse three, Paul is reminding us the only way we will ever receive God's adopting love is for us to be on the redemptive shoulders of Jesus. That is the only way it will ever happen for us to stand on the shoulders of the one who has died for us, for, for us to come with the empty hands of faith, not trying to achieve our salvation, but receiving it. We come with the empty hands of faith, turning from our sin, throwing our life upon Jesus. And it is in that moment that we are brought into the family of God, that we have the right to become children of God. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be this morning. And and I want to make sure that we're overtly clear this morning. Not everyone are sons and daughters of God. It is those who have received Jesus, who have believed in his name. It's to those people all of those people are sons and daughters of God. And if there has never been that decisive move for you, that, that moment of turning from your sins, coming with the empty hands of faith, throwing your life upon Jesus, man, may this be your moment. This is how we receive God's redeeming, adopting love. That's how it's done. If you have not received it, this can be your morning for that. You can grab that card under your seat, grab that black side, fill that out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus, put it in the offering basket. We would love to follow up with you. If you need prayer this morning, we're gonna have people at the prayer table. They would love to pray for you and intercede for you. And maybe just as you're considering, what does it mean to respond to this morning? Maybe you could just ask yourself the question. What if, what if it's really true that God's your daddy? What if it's really true that you're his son, that you're his daughter? What if it's really true that for the rest of your life, you don't have to wonder if you're under the frown of God or the smile of God? What if it's really true that with anything in any moment, regardless of how bad we look, we can approach God as Father. What, what if it's really true that God has promised to provide for us? What if it's true that regardless of how dark our lives are right now, that God has promised to protect us? to never let anything into our life that would not be for our ultimate good? Can you imagine how much would change about our life instantly if we believe those things? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, 
please visit us at stonegate-church.com.